It is so good to be here with you guys. I, uh, I wasn't here last week. I, I uh, had a great privilege of uh, teaching at a men's retreat uh, for Grace Chapel in Clifton Park. A good, good friend of mine is their pastor over there. And he invited me to, uh, to go up to Speculator. It was like negative 18 degrees up there. Because you know how much I love the cold weather and the Lord was so good. And so uh, we had a great time uh, up there in Speculator. But I got to tell you, I miss you when I'm away. It's okay. You don't have to say you miss me too. I mean, I get it. I mean, I'm not fishing for compliments here. But I, I do. I miss being here. I miss seeing you guys and hearing what's going on. And so I'm, uh, I'm thrilled to be back this morning. Thank you to Pastor Tyler for doing such a great job last week. I love that God has raised up great Bible teachers here in our congregation, that uh, we don't miss a beat no matter who's standing in, on this stage and opening the word. It's always a gift and a joy to, uh, to have that deep bench in our church. So we're real glad for that. Before we jump in, I do want to make um, one plea to you. Tonight, at 6 p.m., we're going to be hosting a congregational meeting. And, and I realize that words are loaded with meaning, right? And uh, we are not a congregational church. And so when I say things like congregational meeting, a lot of times we're like, wait, hold on. We're doing a business meeting? No, actually, it's not a business meeting. That's really good news because business meetings are tons of fun. Uh, we are not doing a business meeting. No, it, it will not be an airing of the grievances. We're not going to do that. But what we are going to do, and, and the, the word congregational meeting might be a little different than, than what you're anticipating. It is a gathering of our congregants, who, those of you who can make it. We'd love to have you here. And it's not really for business, but it's more, there's two little updates we're going to give you on that. But there's, it's more about brainstorming and prayer together. And so we're going to gather together. The elders recently met and identified some priorities for the coming year and season here in our church. And we spent, we, we, at an off-site meeting, we spent an hour just highlighting the things that are going well and the things that we're proud of, things we're excited about, things we're grateful to the Lord for providing. It was such a joy. And we still identified a handful of things that we really wanted to lean in on over this next season. But we're looking for some help and ideas on how to make that work. And just for a preview, some of you are not like on your feet kind of people. You need a little bit of time to, to, to think through this. So today, while you're napping and eating Chipotle, think about these. Right, that sounds good, doesn't it? Chipotle today? I think that's where we're headed. All right. Um, none of you go there. I want to get my burrito quick. But here's, here are the things that we're going to be talking about tonight. We, we're going to be talking together in small groups, coming up with ideas about how we could better disciple our people, how we could help the people in our congregation grow in Christ-likeness and righteousness, grow in their understanding of the word to be mature in Christ. We want to find a good way to, um, to lean in on that and disciple our people in a stronger way. We want to find ways to identify gifts of leadership in the congregation and help those people develop and use their gifts. And we have an idea that we'd like to see some more gatherings, not, not as big as a church service on Sunday, but not as small as a small group gathering either, somewhere in the middle for fellowship and encouragement and um, mutual discipleship. So we want your ideas on maybe how we could make that work within our congregation and what you might suggest. So we'd love for you to join us tonight to offer some ideas and insight on those things and to pray with us that God would give us the desire of our heart and help us work on this over these next, uh, this next year. So tonight, six o'clock, right here. Are we good? Good. All right. Bibles open to Daniel chapter 3 would be really good for you today. Um, Daniel chapter 3 is where we're going. I'll get there in just a second. By now, you probably know um, about me a number of things. One, that I love Boston cream donuts. And uh, 
<laughs> Thank you for all of you wonderful people. Um, but also that I'm, I'm a, bit of a, a bit of a history obsessed, uh, history file, we'll call it that. I, I, I love history, I love American history especially, fascinated by the men and women whose courage and conviction and ideals influenced the great drama and the story of human history shaping the development of societies and national affairs. I'm inspired by their lives. I'm, I'm inspired by their sacrifices that they've made in order to make their mark on the story of, of human history. I've, I've found it rewarding through the years to read and ponder some of the most famous quotes from those heroes of past eras. And in fact, you could probably tell the story of human history through a small sampling of those quotable uh, um, moments. I mean, think about that just for a moment. Winston Churchill, you've, you've heard me quote Winston a number of times. I'm, I'm fascinated by Winston Churchill because of the improbable survival of the United Kingdom during the, the conflict of World War II. And Churchill's leadership is so intriguing to me. You remember some of his famous speeches before Parliament, one, one of which he said that the British would never sender, surrender. He said, we shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And in that moment, it galvanized a country to stand against the, the, the most evil empire the world had seen up to that point. Or, or maybe even Franklin Roosevelt, who after the attack on Pearl Harbor, you heard him say that today, December 7th, 1941, was a date which will live in infamy. And we can mark that event by that little statement. Or, or going a little farther, it was Teddy Roosevelt, right, who in his address on citizenship in a republic said that it wasn't the critic who counts, but the one who's actually striving. And he, he finishes up with this statement. He said, far better it is to dare mighty things, to win glorious triumphs, even though checkered by failure, than to rank with those timid spirits who neither enjoy nor suffer much because they live in the gray twilight that knows neither victory nor defeat. Talking about how we need to get off the sidelines and actually get in the arena and quit griping about how the strong man could have done better. Right? Galvanizing people to their responsibility in the republic. Going back farther, maybe Abraham Lincoln, we, we learned of the Gettysburg Address, right? Some of us have it memorized. Some of us have visited the battlefield. Remember those words? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new government, a new nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. The guy who went before him spoke for two hours. Two hours he spoke. Lincoln spoke for under two minutes. And he accomplished more in that two minutes than that previous joker in two hours. There's probably something to be said of the length of a preacher's sermons in that illustration right there. But I was gone last week, so you're going to give me a little bit of a leeway today. Remember Nathan Hale, one of Patrick Henry's contemporaries and George Washington's contemporaries, who, who convicted of spying against the British, said at the gallows, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Right? The courage and conviction of men and women through the ages and those statements that, that, that capture their hearts and their sacrifice and their commitment and when we tell the story of the drama of the nations, we can't tell it without them. Today we're going to look at an episode from the life of three young Hebrew boys whose courage and conviction nearly cost them their lives, 
but their faith and their confidence in God's ability to deliver them was the hope in the trial. And their testimony, the testimony of what God did in their midst still moves us to faithfulness today. In Daniel chapter 3, in verse 16 through 18, they have one of those galvanizing moments. And we'll learn a little bit more about it this morning, but I want to just read that, that three-verse section. Daniel 3, verse 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. And here it comes. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. And instantly, for, for generations now, thousands of years, the people of God had read those verses and it's galvanized their courage, their resolve, their commitment to the Lord. Because if God could show up in the lives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and bring deliverance and favor and grace in the face of ultimate trial, then surely the same God can do the same thing for us today. Today we're going to look at, uh, I've titled my, my message today, Faith Under Fire. We're going to look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which is not just a fictional fairy tale, but an account of what occurred in the lives of real people in a real place. Let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the word of God and its ministry in our lives, that it, that it works in us and it, it washes over us and it sanctifies us and, and it cuts us right to the core. Lord, today we ask that that you would be present, that you would speak through your word to our hearts, that we would have courage to be faithful to whatever you reveal. And God, that you would use our time to strengthen us, that we would stand with you for righteousness and truth. And God, that you would show up in our lives in dramatic ways. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So what we're going to do is just kind of work through this story together. If you have been part of a church for six or seven days, you've heard somebody talk to you about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It is one of the most foundational stories we teach our children. We have heard sermon after sermon after sermon about it through the years. It's a very popular story. I am still going to explain it to those of you who may not be totally familiar with it, um, but we are not going to read every verse today, but we're going to give the overview of the story and then hopefully make some, some observations and applications based on the text. But the first thing we see in the first seven verses is that Nebuchadnezzar has set up a golden statue. The first, the first order in this uh, order of business in this story is this golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. In the first seven verses, we get a really clear picture of it, all right? So I don't think it's coincidence, by the way, that his previous dream from chapter two was of a large statue, himself being occupying the position as the head of gold. Very quickly, he now sets up an entire statue, all of gold, possibly a picture of him, possibly of somebody else, but I like to think of it as himself. Set up, verse 1 tells us, 60 cubits by 6 cubits. It's 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide. 
That is a large statue. And he made it of gold. And even if it was only, I, I don't imagine that it was solid gold. That would have been really crazy. But even if it was gold plated, my goodness, it would have taken so much gold to cover and wrap that statue. He spared no expense in building this monument. No expense in building a statue. A statue that was ultimately dedicated to his own glory. Because make no mistake, what is happening here in this chapter is not just about three Hebrew boys, but about the arrogance of a, of a powerful king who sets himself up in opposition against the God of Israel, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he says, look at the detail of the worshipers. Look, just, just take a look at, at verse 2 of chapter 3. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And verse 3, then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, he, he mentions them all again. When repetition appears in Hebrew literature, it is, it is a way of emphasizing the content. It is, it is a tool, a literary device that's supposed to shine light on the content. It, it enhances and emphasizes what's there. So what is it that is there? It is that Nebuchadnezzar built up a monument to his own glory and then demanded that everybody in the kingdom come and worship him. No matter how great or small, all the officials from all the provinces around the empire were coming to this place to worship him. Which is interesting, right? Because it's in the plain of Dura, in the province of Shinar, where the Tower of Babel was set up as a monument to the glory of men and as a way of unifying society. And God would not stand for it, so he confused language and scattered the people. And yet, here's Nebuchadnezzar trying his hand at unifying the people under his own glory and setting himself up to be worshipped. Again, this is not about just these three Hebrew men. This is a showdown between the God of Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. So here's, here's the story. He says, we're going to set it up. I'm going to strike up the band. And when you hear all the music, everybody, everybody from all over the province will bow down and worship the image that I have set up. And if you don't, there is a clear, stern warning. Whoever doesn't fall down will be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. If you do not bow down, I will burn you until you die. That's what he says. Little, we call that foreshadowing, right? That sounds a little bit harsh, Nebuchadnezzar. If you're reading it for the first time, you're thinking, man, I hope nobody actually does that. Right? He, he loads this thing for us, right? He sets up a monument to his own glory in an attempt to unify the people around his rule and demands that they all worship it. The second thing we see is a, is a peaceful resistance. Peaceful resistance because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego worshiped the God who had revealed them, himself to them, the God of the Bible, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. They worship, they worship Yahweh. 
They are not going to bow down and worship at a graven image. It violates the commitments they've made. It violates the commandments of the holiness of God. They will not allow themselves to compromise like that. And so we have a bit of a problem. So what happens is not that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego file a complaint with human resources and they say, listen, we love being here. You guys have treated us so well, but the policy on worshiping the idol, it infringes upon my rights as an American citizen for the freedom of worship. No, there is no right to the freedom of worship. There's, There's nobody they appeal to. Somebody just tattles on them. And verse 8 says, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. There's a little, of an, a little bit of animosity here. The, Chal- the Chaldeans were the astrologers and the advisors to King Nebuchadnezzar, where these Hebrew men, they found themselves among their ranks. But you'll remember in, Hebrews, in uh, Daniel chapter 1, that because God's hand was on these men, the king found them ten times better than all of his astrologers. So there's a little bit of animosity because these foreigners who've now come in are getting the direct line to the king. He's leaning on them more. He's seeking their counsel more because they have established themselves as better than the rest of them. Have you ever been in a workplace environment where because of your success, your coworkers are threatened and seek to undermine you? Have you ever had to endure nine Super Bowls by the stinking New England Patriots? And after a while, just get so tired of watching them win that your favorite football team is now whoever's on the other side of the Patriot line? I just, I mean, I'm asking for a friend because I have this guy I know who knows that feeling, right? Like, it, after a while, the animosity there is building. And so they come and they say, hey, king, you've made a decree, right? That when, when the music plays, we all bow down before this, this image, right? You said that. King says, of course I said that. Well, well you might want to know then. I, don't, I mean, I, I'm not trying to stir up trouble, but those Hebrew boys that you appointed, they refuse. They refuse. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up in verse 12. And then verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded, okay, so his predictable response is rage. This guy is not the most emotionally stable king we've ever seen. Incredibly powerful, yes. Leading a a global superpower, yes. Off the handle, Mm mm-hmm, right? He just threatened to kill off every one of his advisors because they couldn't tell him a mysterious dream. The guy is not the most reasonable person to deal with. So he, he predictably flies into rage. Because in his own mind, he is God. He is more powerful than the gods of Israel because he laid siege to Jerusalem and overtook it. It was the sign to him that he was superior to the gods of the nations he was conquering. And who would dare to stand against him? 
So he flies into furious rage. But he must have been torn because he liked these guys. Ten times better. I mean, there was a sunk cost bias. He, he had invested three years of a training program. He'd, he'd used them for a long time in his service. He doesn't necessarily want to see them burned alive immediately. He gives them a second chance. He offers a do-over. You ever have one of those with your kids? Right? Where you're like, listen, I know we're clear on this, but maybe, maybe you didn't hear me clearly. Here's your chance, right? You're trying as best you can to help them avoid your wrath and punishment. So he calls them in. He says, guys, is this true? Is it, is it true that you won't bow down? Listen, we're all here together. So, so tell me, here, here's how it's going to work. We'll strike up the band again. When you hear it, you'll bow down. But if you don't, gentlemen, just so we're clear, he says, I'm going to kill you. You can bow down, worship the golden image, and live, or I'll kill you in a furnace. The choice is yours. And notice the statement at the end of, is it verse 15? And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Remember, the theme of this passage is not just these three or four guys. The theme of the passage is Nebuchadnezzar squaring off against the the God of the Bible. In his arrogance, in his rebellion, and his pride, he has positioned himself against the God of the scriptures. And just, I mean, we haven't gotten to the end yet, but just a little bit of a preview. That never works well for anybody. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Who is stronger than me, he said. You think your God has power to deliver you? Not a chance. Look at his arrogance. He is drunk on his own success and on his own glory. And Daniel is doing a great job pointing this theme out here over and over and over again. Look at verse 16 through 18. The faith and conviction of these young men is so inspiring, isn't it? Look at their response. They said, we don't need any time to think about this. We don't have to answer you, king. If this is so, if if this is so and you toss us into a furnace... God can deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to compromise and bow down to your gods. We're not going to violate our our relationship with him in order to appease you. We will not cower to the demands of this earthly kingdom. We will instead stand in submission to a heavenly kingdom. These men knew God in a way that made them fearless and courageous. I want to know God like that. They knew God in a way that if it cost them their lives, not just a few followers on Twitter, not just a few friends on Facebook, not just a, not just a seat at the right lunch table at school, not just a position at work, if it cost them their lives, they didn't even have to think about it. And... And yet we struggle out of fear of losing a bit of our reputation. Remember Hebrews 12, we haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. I want to know God like that. It makes you fearless and courageous. These guys trusted the character and the power of God. 
And what blows my mind is that they trusted him even when they were in exile. They didn't trust him in a time when everything was going right in their lives. They had been stolen from their land as young men, indoctrinated and put to work for the enemy. And still they trusted him. It would have been easy for them to look at the circumstances and say, God, you're not trustworthy because my life is fallen apart. And yet, because they knew God so well, so closely, that even in exile they trusted him. And they put their faith in action. Likely it would have cost them their lives. But if not, they said, and even if God doesn't, I'm not bowing down to your gods. We won't serve them. You ever wonder why not? Why was it such a big deal? Nebuchadnezzar wasn't asking them to renounce their faith in their God. That wasn't the way Nebuchadnezzar worked. When they occupied and and annexed a new nation, they allowed you to continue to worship. They just needed to know that you were worshiping their gods primarily and you could worship your God right below. He wasn't asking them to stop being Hebrews. He wasn't asking them to stop loving and serving their God. What he was asking them to do is just to assimilate their religion under his state religion. Oh, now we're getting close, aren't we? Okay, so what's the big deal? They're thousands of miles from home. Their moms aren't anywhere around. Seriously, so what they don't bow down? Who's gonna find out? Their pastor, he's not there. And what's the big deal? He's not asking them to to vocally deny God. He's not asking them to verbally assent to his supremacy. What's the big deal? What if they kneel with their bodies, but their hearts are pure before the Lord? What's the big deal, right? It's the same thing as the the diet in chapter one. Right? The big deal is that it's a big deal to God. Because God said, don't worship something else. And that was big enough. And even if no one else saw them, and even if they kind of bowed down a little bit, even if they didn't get all the way down on the ground on their hands and faces before the image, a compromise in this was a violation of what God asked of them. James Boyce says it this way. Let me say at this point, so that we will understand this story at the proper level, that this is the problem that confronts every follower of the true God when the requirements of serving him come into conflict with the demands of a secular state. I mean by this, not merely a demand to do an openly wicked thing or die for refusing to do it, like refusing to, kill or turn, refusing to turn over or to kill Jews in Nazi Germany, I mean, any pressure to disobey the teachings of the Bible, whether by peers in your school, by fellow employees, by employers, or whoever it may be. Whenever you are pressured to do something or not to do something, that you know by the teachings of the Bible to be wrong or right, your situation is that of these three men, and your responsibility before God is the same. You must do the right. You must not bow to the world's demands even if the consequences are costly. This is our story, right? 
This is not far off. This is not just ancient history. This is you and I today. Tomorrow morning, some of you are walking into a high school where if you are expressive of your faith, you run the risk of being reprimanded and disciplined. Some of you are walking into a workplace where if you open your mouth and share your hope in Christ, you'll be reprimanded and disciplined. Some of you are walking into a situation where your boss is applying pressure for you to do something that is is slightly off, a little under the table, hidden from clear view, and is essentially a, a violation of policy and conviction. This, this is our life, right? We know exactly how this feels. Maybe not, maybe not with the consequences of death staring us in the face. But every time the kingdom of God places demands on us that compete with the demands of other kingdoms, we know exactly how this feels. But I want to go a step further. It's not just the external kingdoms of this world that we're competing with. We're also competing with the kingdom of our own heart. Because inside each of us, Paul Tripp, you guys also know that I love Paul Tripp, right? Phenomenal Christian counselor, great material that he writes. Talks about how each of us has this arrogant little sovereign inside our own hearts, demanding ultimate authority over where we go and what we do. A strong opponent to the lordship of Jesus, and we have to fight daily for God to maintain his place of leadership in our lives. We have to stand in the face of temptation. We have to guard our purity. We have to guard our reputations in the community and in our homes. We need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord and submit to his leadership in our lives. We must submit to his kingdom demands on us and not give in to the impulse to seek comfort and peace through substance, through alcohol, through relationships, through unhealthy commitments to work, through any false ideal. We need to look at the places in our lives where the kingdom of God competes with our kingdom of self and bow our hearts and minds and lives to Jesus. We daily find ourselves at this point of decision, don't we? Will I worship at the altar of self or will I serve God? Will I say with these Hebrew men, I don't care what it costs me, I won't disobey God. I wanna bring up another point here before we start moving again. We're parked This is is one of those vistas, those those views on the parkway where you could stop and get out and take all the pictures. You ever try that with a family of four children? (laughs) My my parents came and we they wanted to go to Lake George, so we went to Lake, and they wanted to go Prospect Mountain, and so like, oh, let's take a picture because that sounds like a good idea in all those sitcoms. It's not a good good idea in real life. Like you're bribing kids. I'll give you three candy bars and a pony if you just stand here and shut up for three seconds. (laughs) Quit crying. Don't hit your sister. All right, this is another point I'm trying to make. It is highly unlikely, please hear me out. It is highly unlikely that this conviction, that this resolve and commitment was conjured up in the moment of conflict. If you wait until the moment of conflict to ponder in your heart what you'll do in the conflict, you're gonna choose the path of least resistance. We always choose the path of least resistance. Like most victories of personal integrity, this was a public display of what was happening privately in their hearts between them and the Lord. There were commitments to obedience and to purity that were made before this showdown moment. We're not much different. 
If we wait to that moment of confrontation, we often choose what's least resistant. But if we have a vibrant and a rich life with God, we can make those commitments to him in the quiet places and then stand with resolve in the public places. The one who would stand publicly is the one who has met with God privately. We don't wait until the conflict to figure out what we're going to do. Okay, so they resisted. They didn't protest. They didn't have picket signs. They didn't burn anything yet, right? But they resisted. So Nebuchadnezzar, true to his word, fires up the furnace. The third point we're going to look at is this furnace, this uh, dramatic deliverance, right? So again, rage and fury is the reaction. We're not surprised. How dare they, right? How dare they stand against my ultimate authority and my divine power? Don't they know that I have the power to take them out, right? So he, they fire up the furnace. One, one commentator, there's a little bit of confusion on what this furnace looked like. I don't know. I wasn't there and nobody took a picture for me. But some of them, some suggest it looked like a long uh, railroad tunnel with a, like, like a big pizza oven, right? Blocked at one end where they tossed, uh, tossed fuel in and there were shafts in the top. Some suggested it was like a, a tall building with like the a door on the bottom where you threw the fuel in and they walked them up and tossed them over. You know what the point is? I, it's, the point is not what shape the oven looked like, but the point is that it was really hot and it was killing people. That's the point. It was a tool of death used to kill people and they fired it up seven times hotter than normal. Seven times hotter. They say that these things could reach 1,800 to 2,000 degrees. It was hot. He was so enraged that they did this that he wanted to make an example of them. He wanted this to be quick instantaneous. He ordered some of his mighty men, some of his special ops forces to throw the prisoners into the, for, into the furnace. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking bound and shackled into the furnace and to get thrown in. And the king's men, the, the fire was so hot that it consumed the special forces guys who were tossing them in. And in their last act of obedience, as they died, they pushed into the fire these three Hebrew men. And the king sat down to watch the show. He expected it to be quick. And something happened. The king spotted something in the fire that caused him to jump up quickly. And what he saw was there were four figures walking around in the furnace. And he got up and he said, wait a minute. We threw three guys in there, bound and shackled. And I see four people walking around. They're not screaming, they're not yelling, they're walking around inside the fire. And the fourth person is like a son of the gods, he said. Oh my goodness. Okay, remember Daniel chapter 2? Remember when, when he says to them, guys, I want you to tell me what, the, what the, the dream is. And they say, look, we can't tell you the dream. There isn't a man alive who can tell you the dream. He says, you tell me the dream, I'll kill you. He says, what you're asking, only the gods can do, and the gods don't walk among men. <gasps> but they do. <laughs> Two cha- a chapter later, they do. Remember when he said, what God will be able to deliver you from my hands? Well, apparently their God can. This is a showdown between the God of this world, the kingdoms of this world, and the kingdom of God. 
And Nebuchadnezzar says, wait a minute, I threw three guys in there. I see four, and the fourth is like a son of the gods. There was a divine visitor standing in the fire with them. Now, there's a lot of debate over who this is. Is it Jesus? Is it a, is it a pre-incarnate version of Jesus? He is like the son of the gods. Very possible. Some say it was an angelic visitor to bring deliverance. Also very possible. I don't know. I wasn't there. I like to think of it as a, as a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. I like to envision it that way. But you know what? I could be wrong. The point being, somebody, some angelic visitor, some divine godlike visitor is now standing in the midst of the worst day of their lives and protecting them and delivering them. The king orders them out immediately because that's what you do when stuff like that happens. You say, wait, hold, get them out of here. What in the world is going on? And he, he examines them. And they were mysteriously unharmed. It burned up the army guys that tossed them in. They were unharmed. Their hair wasn't singed. You ever get too close to a gas grill? No, you haven't? Just, might have just been me then. I've been there a time or two. Their hair wasn't singed. Their clothes weren't burned. Pastor Scott and I were on a, on a, uh, a trip one time. We were camping and we melt, I melted the bottom of my shoes because I got too close to the fire. I, you, true story. <laughs> their, their clothes weren't burnt. They didn't even have the smell of fire on them. They, Amanda hates it when I go camping because I come home and everything stinks like campfire. Fun story. Joe, Joe remember that time we went to Gus's down at Waterville? Joe took me down to Gus's to get hot dogs at Waterville and I had to burn the jacket that I wore in there. <laughs> if you've never been to Gus's, it's kind of... You have to picture what would happen if a propane gas grill and a carport had a baby, right? You get Gus's hot dogs. And so Joe and I go in there and the place just, it stinks. Oh, it's bad. And it gets in your clothes and in your hair. And for like days and days, Amanda's like, get that coat out of this house. It stinks. These guys didn't smell like fire at all. Gus's hot dogs would be good today too, wouldn't it? Chase that Chipotle with some, some meat sauce. All right. Didn't even have the smell of fire on them. So here, here's what happened. The fire and the judgment of the most powerful king of this world was powerless against them because they were protected by one like the son of the gods. It was a miracle of deliverance. This has nothing to do with the character. This is not a statement of the next level discipleship of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is a statement of God's powerful deliverance of his own. That when they stand in the face of the fire, he's willing to insert himself and stand with them. So Nebuchadnezzar has a change of heart because that's what you do when stuff like that happens because that's crazy and it's weird. He's moved, not converted. He's charmed. He's confronted by the power of their God. He's impressed with it all, but he does not worship their God yet. He's impressed with the conviction and faithfulness of these men, and a decree is issued. No one in the kingdom is allowed to speak against their God, and if they do, they're going to be torn limb from limb. This guy is a trip, isn't he? 
Hey, you ever tell your kid that if they don't listen to you, you're going to give them away? <laughs> this, is, this is exactly the same thing. If you don't stop that, I'm going to take away every one of your Christmas presents. No, I'm not. You know how much money's invested in that? I'm not going to do that. I'll have to end up buying another one. This guy, like, if you don't do this, if, if, if you speak ill against their God, you'll be torn limb from limb, and then your house will be torn down too, just to add insult to injury. Because their God is able to rescue in a way that no other God can. And then they were promoted. Can you imagine that? You, had a, you got a new promotion for the guy who tried to kill you? Can you imagine how staff meetings would be awkward and uncomfortable then? Would you ever speak up again? Well, King, I think that might be a dumb idea, but I mean, it's up to you. All right, so what? What does all that mean for us today? I've really been looking forward to this passage, can you tell? I've been so excited about this. What does it mean for us? Here's what it means. I think there's some big picture things and some really precise things that we can, then can draw from. The, the, on the big picture level, the power of God and his kingdom over the arrogance and pride of the kingdoms of this world is on clear display. Like at the end of the day, the number one thing we have to walk away from is not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but the glory and the power of our God, that he is head and shoulders, 10 times, 100 times, 1,000 times more powerful and strong than the kingdoms of this world. And like I read this morning in Psalm 93, the Lord reigns and he sits robed in majesty and even though the waters roar and foam against him, they have to listen to his voice. He's in complete control. And as chaotic as your life feels sometimes, the God we serve is squarely seated on his throne, is unmoved and unchanged. His power over the arrogance of the kingdoms of this world is on display. Another big picture theme that we can see is that the idols of our age are constantly calling for our worship. And that includes the idols out there and the idols in our own heart. They demand us fall down and worship them. There is no shortage of opportunities for compromise in our day. Every moment of every day, there is some false God begging us to bow. We have to be vigilant and on guard. Okay, so big picture, God is real and big, bigger and realer than everything else in this world. Secondly, that battle wages around us and right in our own hearts. Let's go real practical. The one who would stand in the face of that temptation is the one who has resolved in the quiet places to stand. It's not conjured up in the moment, but the one who stands in the face of temptation publicly is the one who has resolved in the quiet places to stand. There's a, there's a lesson in there for each of us to spend as much time as necessary getting alone before the Lord, submitting our hearts to his will, studying his word and hiding it in our hearts, purposing before we even leave the house in the morning that today, come what may, by God's grace and his strength, I will stand for truth and righteousness and won't compromise. But there's something else that we can see on a personal level. Our commitment, by the way, that's four so what points. So I don't know if you noticed that or not, but I'm not even freaked out about that. That's four and I'm fine. Here's the fourth one. Our commitment to our convictions, 
our commitment to personal obedience to God, our commitment to submit ourselves to the leadership of Jesus is an invitation for us to see the work of God in our lives. Would they have seen the deliverance if they had just bowed down? Would they have walked in the fire with one like the son of the gods if they had just said, what's the big deal? What does that mean for us? I think that means that if we, if we would submit ourselves to the righteous demands of God on our lives, if we would love him and show him love by obeying him, if we would commit ourselves to following him, to killing sin in our lives and walking in grace and truth and fullness. It's an invitation. We might sacrifice a few things, but it's an invitation for God to join us and to dramatically show up in our lives. We, we talked about James Boyce. I'm gonna to return to him for a closing statement from his commentary. Here's what Boyce said. By the way, he pastored in Philadelphia. I don't know if you know that or not, but 10th Presbyterian. <clears throat> Let us stand for the right and do it. Let us refuse to compromise. Let us stand with unbowed heads and rigid backbones before the golden statues of our godless materialistic culture. Let us declare that there is a God to be served and a race to be won. Let us shout that we are determined to receive God's prize, which is far greater than this world's tinsel toys, and that we are servants of him before whom every knee will bow. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for your word and all that it teaches us. Thank you for the power that is present there. Thank you for the fact that we can find joy and life under your sovereign control. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we let the kingdoms of this world rule in our hearts instead of your kingdom. Lead us, God, to, to faithful obedience to you. Lead us to, to glad submission. Lead us to joyful obedience. And God, when we need you most in the darkest of our days, thank you for your provision that you walk with us through the fire, that you lead us through the valley of the shadow of death, that you stand with us when it feels like all around is falling. Thank you that we are not left alone, that you have power to save, power to deliver, power to overcome. Lord, I pray for our congregation that we would be the kind of people whose lives and connection with you is so deep and so rich that we would purpose in our hearts to stand no matter the cost so that the watching eyes of our children, our relatives, our neighbors, and strangers in the street would know that there's a God to be served and a race to be won. God, help us to refuse to bow at the altars of this world and instead to bow only at the feet of him to whom every knee will bow. In Jesus' precious name we pray.